And so the, uh, the bulletin is incorrect. Uh, we are in Judges chapter 7, not chapter 6. Judges chapter 7, verses 1 through 18. <clears throat> I just love chapter 6 so much, it was hard to leave. So, uh, so we're in chapter 7, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 18 as we continue uh, our study in the, judge, in the book of Judges, and specifically uh, in a very lengthy section in the book of Judges that is dedicated to Gideon. And so last week we looked at Gideon's fleece, but we are still not yet at the time where the battle would commence. If you think about all the, the, cycle, the cycle that normally processes here is that you have the, um, you have the, the Israelites who, who sin against the Lord and then he brings an oppressor and then uh, they cry out to the Lord. He raises a deliverer who brings deliverance and then it goes and it recycles again and again and again. Well, it's interesting is that he's kind of, he, he's got bring the deliverer, but there's just this huge gap between bringing the deliverer and the deliverance. <laughs> there's just not, he just, in, the, in previous ones, it was the, the, the judge went and they assassinated the ruler or raised up the army and just kind of did it, <laughs> you know, really fast. But there seems to be a lot of ink being spilled between the raising up that deliverer and the actual taking action. And so it's very interesting um, and, and uh, why Gideon is one of the most interesting judges to uh, study. So uh, we pick up in chapter 7, verses 1 through 18. It'll be read from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Jeroboam, uh, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was north of them uh, by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test uh, them for you there. And anyone whom, of whom I say to you, uh, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink... And, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. Uh, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provision in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. <coughs> and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. And the same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. Uh, but if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. Uh, and the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number, as the sand is on the seashore in abundance. 
When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling his dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian um, and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into their hands of all, the, all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of, of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So there are um, things that we can desire as Christians that uh, they, they, they are noble enough in themselves, but... Um, we perhaps haven't quite thought them all the way through. Uh, we, we haven't quite figured out exactly what we're asking for before we ask it. We kind of ask it because you think you're supposed to or it sounds good, but you don't quite realize what you're asking for. You know, for, uh, for instance, like humility, right? It's, it's, good, to, it's good to have humility. Um, but, uh, but, you know, if you're praying, you know, Lord, you know, make me a humble person. All right. All right. You can pray that. But uh, humility does not come without great pain. Right. And so there's a lot of pain that comes in order to bring us to a place of humility. And and God. But the Bible says, you know, we, we humble yourself under his mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. That's what Peter commands, especially to those who are under persecution. Right. Humility is necessary, but it is also painful. Well, like humility, we may also um, think of assurance as something that is desirable, something that we want, but we haven't quite thought through what it means to have it. And so when we ask for assurance, we ought to be careful, too, that we know what we're asking for. Uh, assur assurance is a funny thing. It's, it's something that we want, but few of us uh, uh, would want the conditions necessary to get it. Uh, this, because... Who needs assurance? Do the strong and the confident need assurance? No, it is the weak, the doubting, the fearful, and the struggling. They are the ones who need assurance. Who needs assurance? Gideon needs assurance. Oh, we know Gideon needs assurance. We've seen it again and again already, and he needs some more assurance before he goes into battle. But to but but to make to make it clear of what Gideon needs, God weakens the one point of strength that Gideon has, the thirty-two thousand strong army. So tonight we're going to consider how God uses weakness, weakness in his own people, to remind his people who the true deliverer is, and then how he assures his weak servant. Of his promises. And so, first, God uses human weakness in order to clarify 
who the true deliverer is. Now, to understand this, we need to consider the problem of human strength. Gideon is getting ready to fight. He has, uh, he has gotten his fleece miracle and an army of 32,000 against a much larger force of the fighting men of three combined peoples. Now, you would think it's time to get to work. We would be hearing some battle statistics and Gideon made them flee and pursued them and whatnot. But God comes to Gideon and says, Gideon, you're too strong. Even though Gideon is probably outnumbered, uh, if Gideon and his men win, uh, the situation is such that it could still be, technically speaking, chalked up to human ingenuity and strength. Many years after this, during the Roman Empire, uh, the, um, uh, the, you know, the, the feared Hannibal would be the terror of, of Rome uh, because he would harass them and constantly attack them and strike terror into the hearts of the country, even though he was technically and regularly outnumbered. But he was smart. He would never fight the Roman army head on. He would always fight only on his terms in the locations that he chose and in the situations that were advantageous to him. And, or he would just go find a town that didn't really have many soldiers and attack it. <laughs> so, um, but, he, but, that's, but he was smart about it. And, uh, and, and so today, people still talk about the military and strategic brilliance of Hannibal, even though he had a much smaller force than the Roman legions. And so the, the problem here is that it doesn't take much in the way of human strength in order to stoke our egos. And uh, in, in fact, the greater the victory that God might give, and the greater the opportunity for pride to come in and say, I did that. This is not to say that believers, that the people of God, should never pursue strength, that we should never pursue excellence. Rather, it is a warning that pride is ever present waiting to pounce upon our hearts and to take away what ought to be an occasion for worship and worshiping God and turn it into worship of ourselves. We must be careful in our efforts to, you know, to become healthy, even godly, self-reliant. Self-reliance is a good thing. It's, it's good to become you know, self-reliant to a degree. But we need to make sure that we're not that it's not self-reliance turning into self-worship, self-righteousness. To the point where we say, well, I got here by pulling my bootstraps so hard, I raised myself up to the top. And this brings us, uh, you know, so we had the problem of human strength, but and, and this and, the, and which leads to the opportunity of and even necessity of human weakness when it comes to serving God. What God does here is nothing short of scandalous from a military perspective. Military doctrine or for going into combat to, is going to, if a military unit, especially U.S. military, is going to attack an objective, uh, then, then part of the planning is to come with overwhelming technology, overwhelming force. I mean, we're just going to come in and we're going to bring in like two to one ratios and bring in superior firepower. Like that is our method because that's what we do. I remember I was talking with Matt Peden recently, and he was talking about uh, his. Um, it was interesting because you would, sometimes you know the U.S. will bring in 
Um, uh, you know, friends of other countries will send their military officers to come train over here and get training. And it was interesting when he was at the war college and they would run, they would run simulations against each other. And, and so, you know, there's the, the, the American military approach, but then there was another guy who was there from another country and he, and there was a much smaller country that had a much smaller military force and they couldn't provide overwhelming force. So their whole strategy was completely different than the American strategy, which was kind of like, hide and seek and kind of poke and run and kind of like it because you would just kind of that's how it was and he was really good at it and he said he was always really frustrated because he would he said when they would war game he could never find the guy <laughs> like and they would they would war game and 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 whatever way that they would do it but he said he could never find him and it was really frustrating because the guy knew how to hide and avoid uh, uh, you know uh, uh, assault american military assaults and so there are different uh, approaches to this but he knew his weakness but but from a military standpoint what god is doing here it just makes no sense from from our current combat doctrine but this is exactly what god does he intentionally reduces uh gideon's force from something that was pretty decent to nothing to 300 men whatever whatever uh gideon the confidence that gideon had and and at least i have 32,000 men is gone right uh, and so he tells Gideon to send home anyone who is shaken in their boots, essentially, uh, at the thought of going to war. Now, actually, Deuteronomy 20, Moses lays out rules for going to battle. You apparently had a certain rounds of dismissal. Um, and so uh, you were supposed to dismiss anyone who had just built a house um, and had not dedicated it um, so that they, would, they wouldn't die. And I guess, the, I guess there was some kind of property issue there because if you died and you haven't dedicated it, it could go to someone else possibly. Anyway, so you're supposed to dismiss anyone that had just built a house. You're supposed to dismiss anyone who had just planted a vineyard so um, as well, uh, so that way they would be able to enjoy the fruit of that vineyard, <coughs> I guess at least once before they get into military service. You're supposed to um, uh, um, dismiss anyone who just got engaged but had not yet actually married their bride. And so they needed to be able to uh, be married, I think, for at least a year, if I recall. Uh, and then lastly, you were, they were, you were to dismiss anyone who was fearful or faint-hearted and afraid to go to war. Um, now, and they would be sent back. And the reason was is because uh, if you have a bunch of scaredy cats, essentially, on the front lines, and they start running away when the enemy's coming, well, guess what everyone else is going to do? They're going to break ranks and run. So, um, so saying, look, we only want the people here who are, who, are, um, who are going to fight. And I can't imagine, though, if, that you, if you turn back, you're really going to be well received. <laughs> so I can't imagine being like, well, I was scared, so I left. So, uh, but anyway, 22,000 leave. 22,000, they're afraid to fight. They don't want to do it. So now uh, you know, that leaves Gideon with uh, a, a force of 10,000. Which is oh, 10,000. Okay, that's, that's still... Not great, but, but better than nothing. Um, uh, but even after two-thirds of the force leaves, over two-thirds of the force leaves, Gideon, uh, God comes to Gideon and says, no, it's still too big. Still too big. Which leaves us two questions. One, uh, how amazing is the miracle going to be that God is going to do here? And two, what does this say about the propensity of the human heart to credit ourselves with the works of God? If he comes and says, it's still too big. If, if I give you the victory now, you'll still say it was just you. <laughs> I 
He says it's got to be even smaller. You got to have no chance. <laughs> you have to have zero chance. So God instructs Gideon to take the men down, uh, down and, to, uh, and to have them drink water and based upon how they drink water to separate them out. Uh, apparently 9,700 9, of them drink it like a normal person. The other 300 are what they call lappers. Um, and, uh, and so in these lappers, it's, it is kind of funny how uh, there are commentators who will like kind of take the method that they must have been drinking water and kind of associate it with kind of like being able to drink water and kind of keep an eye on the enemy and stuff like that. And, and there's funny one commentator I read, was a scholar, he's read all this stuff. He was just like, that's a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> he was like, you talk about reading into a text. He was like, this isn't like some, you know, uh, some SEAL Team 6 uh, strategy of how to drink water at, at thing. This is just, this is a weird way to drink water. And God says, those guys, those, those are your guys, the weirdos. All right, those are your guys. All right. And also, as far as we know, they're not armed with anything. They don't have any swords. They have, like, farm equipment. So, still. So, so, so God in, and so, and, and the situation is clear. There is no way that Gideon can win this without God's help. No amount of strategy, no surprising ambush, nothing is going to work. As soon as he engages in any kind of battle with these three people groups, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the people of the east, they're done. They're toast. But now God, in the weakness of human flesh, can demonstrate his power and bring about a deliverance that can only be explained by the divine intervention of the Lord. And here we have the perfection of the power of God. We love the idea of God's power being put on display. But when we see it at work, it is always at work on behalf of his weak and often defenseless people. It's often at the moment where the people are afraid, terrified. I mean, when, when the Red Sea happened, think about that, right? The Red Sea happened and we're like, yes, awesome. You go, Charlton Heston, and you divide those waters, right? Okay. And then, uh, and then uh, and th but what was going on? What's going on in the background with the Israelites? They're screaming in terror because the Pharaoh and his army are coming down on their heads, right? And what does Moses say? He says, stand back. Be quiet and watch what God does. But they're terrified. They think they're going to die. This is not a good moment for them. And then God, you know, then he does his thing. But it's in a moment of terror and helplessness that God does it. The nation of Israel itself was born from Abraham and Sarah, two people who were so old that it was impossible for them to have children. You know, this, uh, the, the, you talk about weakness. You talk about God doing his power, being at work. You mentioned the Red Sea, the deliverance, the, the plagues that God did for, uh, for Israel and against Egypt, how he sustained them in the wilderness, how he brought them into the promised land. This is the story of, of God caring for his people and their weakness and need. And judges, it's going to be the story of Israel when they get exiled and when they return. And it's our story as well. It's the story of the church. God loves to display his power in the weakness of his people. Even the apostle Paul, who served Jesus so faithfully and powerfully and zealously, had some unknown, we, can't, we don't know what it was, thorn in the flesh that he could not stand. 
It got in the way. It bothered him. It seemed to affect his ministry. It was making his life more difficult. And so he prayed and he prayed and he prayed, uh, asking for God to take it away. And, and this is what he said happened. He said, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How is, but how, you know, God, Paul says something interesting there. He says, the power of God is made perfect in our weakness. How is, how is it made perfect? Was it lacking? Is there, was God's power imperfect in some way? Well, no, it's not imperfect in the sense that it's lacking anything. It's kind of like when Paul says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in my body. It doesn't mean that there was anything lacking in the cross. It just means the fullest expression of something in our own lives, in the life of the people of God, uh, that, that the power of God was not, is not experienced or apprehended or displayed properly unless it is placed against the backdrop of human weakness. And while that may incite a certain fearfulness that God would not take away every weakness we have and make it into a strength, it should comfort us because God doesn't say, I leave you weak, I make you weak, and then I abandon you. But rather, he says, in your weakness, I display my power. And for the Apostle Paul, this leads him not to despair, but to exult in the power of God that is at work in his human weakness. The thorn of his flesh becomes the means of boasting in Christ. Weaknesses, insults, calamities, hardships, persecutions. These things may have once led God's people to cower in fear, but in Christ, we see that there, in the midst of them, we find our true strength. And we should note carefully that it is at this point, in divinely instituted weakness, that God assures his servants of his promises. And, and so and God, and, and God engages in what we can only call his compassionate assurance with Gideon in verses 9 through 14. So God comes to Gideon and he goes, okay, now you got your army. Got your army, get your 300, all right? Time to go fight. But if you're afraid, I got something for you. You can take your servant and go down to the camp and go listen, go, go listen to what they got to say, right? And Gideon's like, afraid? Yes. <laughs> like, Am I Gideon? Yes, I am afraid. I shall go down uh, to, uh, to the camp. And so they go down, and he listens to two of the sentries talking about a dream. And uh, normally, you know, if someone says, let me tell you about a dream I had, you're kind of like, okay, this is going to get real boring real fast. All right, so, um, but, um, uh, but uh, he hears one of them talk about a, a barley roll that's, that's large and comes and smashes the tent. Uh, and, and, and the other one interprets it and goes, this is Gideon. He's going to come kill us all. <laughs> right? We're all, we're all done for. 
And, and so this, this kind of unusual method of deliverance through uh, getting, you know, destroying the enemy with a large loaf of bread. But just, you know, but we just need to step back here, just take stock of all that God has done for Gideon here. And not in a bad way, but in his compassion, he has sent an angel to call Gideon into action. And the, the angel took the offering from Gideon with the fire from the rock. He, he did the fleece thing twice, right? And God does, doesn't even wait here for Gideon to ask for a sign. He goes, I, I, I know what you need, Gideon. I know what you need. I know you, bud. And he knows he needs help. And, and while we should not, like, look to our enemies, you know, for, for signs of assurance, like, ask, you know, ask your enemy, have you any dreams lately? Like, <laughs> just, no, you know, I know you don't like me. Have you any dreams lately? Because I want to hear something. Um, but, uh, but we should know that God knows that our weaknesses and he knows that we need assurance as well. He knows that as we try to follow him, we are met with all manner of obstacles without and within. And he gives us all manner of assurances in his word and through his people. And there may be times when our sense of assurance is thin or is even all but disappeared. But even the, in these moments, God draws us near as we sense our weakness and need keenly. And as we abandon our earthly means of self-confidence, we find this thing called assurance, as Paul did, as we discover that it is Christ who is our strength. And we find, as we do, we find that worship and wisdom go together beautifully. Worship and wisdom go together beautifully in verses 15 to 18. Gideon hears this and he does the right thing. He worships God. He worships the God who has borne with him so patiently and given him sign after sign after sign. He worships the God who has called him to do this great deed by faith and through complete trust in him and who has now repeatedly assured him that he will come through on his promises. And when God strips us down in our weakness and leaves us no recourse but to trust in him, it is in that vulnerability that he opens up to us the depth of his wonderful promises to us in Jesus. When we have enough earthly handles and comforts to hold on to, we don't understand the depths of God's love and beauty in Jesus Christ. It's when we are forced to let go of those earthly comforts. And, all, and we put our hands up and say, God, all I have is you. All I have left is you. I got nothing you. And thankfully, that's not every moment of every day. Those times where like nothing is going to comfort me unless God is here, unless God does it. And God opens up his promises to us in Jesus. Promises that he has confirmed through the suffering, death, and resurrection of his blessed son. When that happens, then the appropriate response is worship. I mean, I, I know I'm supposed to know it intellectually, but when I read stories of missionaries, for instance, who suffered immensely, who lost uh, children, especially ones who, missionaries who went overseas and they and they you know they lost children, they lost spouses, and they just stuff like that, and you're you're waiting for them to like get angry when they talk about um, or talk or was it um. I think the guy's name uh, now he went he was the he was the uh, missionary to the cannibals 
and he talks about he ta- yeah well he talks about he talks about um, he talks about how uh, one one night uh, they were out that the, he got word that the cannibals were looking for him they wanted to have have him over to dinner um, and uh, in the worst way possible and so uh, and so he was running away from him and he spent the night in a tree and uh, and he said he's never had a sweeter night of worship than in that tree he's never felt closer to God than that night in that tree. <laughs> And so it's like, you know, we think though that'd be the worst moment or the law or the, or the less moment. But it's in those moments where God draws us near, where we have nothing but him and God proves faithful. You know, we don't want to test that. And we're afraid when that moment comes. But God comes through. Even if we're curled up in the fetal position, weeping or if we're running for our lives or we're afraid, we're fearful. God's promises come through. But that worship doesn't preclude the application of wisdom to our situation. Miracles don't mandate being moronic or foolish in our in our activity. This is like doesn't mean like God's, God's going to be miraculous. God's going to Christ is our strength. So therefore, it doesn't matter how we conduct ourselves. It doesn't matter. We can just faith means we can turn off our brains. Right. So Gideon takes his ill-equipped 300 men. And what does he do? I'm going to divide them up into three com- companies, presumably of 100 each. And then he, gets, he tells them the plan. Look, we're going to surround the enemy camp as best we can. One line through. Everyone kind of get your arms apart and we'll hopefully cover as much space as we can. Right? And they got a, they got, well, they got a pot and they got a torch. Right? It doesn't mention any weapons. <laughs> they're thinking, we're going to burn them. You know, we're going to hit them with our pot shirts. All right? And then he says, at the right moment, we're going to blow the trumpet. Oh, they do have trumpets. So, so we have a large group of musicians that are about to attack a well-equipped army. So, all right. And so at the right moment, you're going to shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And, and obviously he is playing on the fears of the soldiers that, that he heard through the enemy camp. Now, we're going to hear about the results next week. But this isn't magic that he's engaging in. Gideon is making the best of what he has. A frontal assault is not going to do it. He didn't say, okay, we got 300 guys, let's just go at them, right? Um, it, the plan requires faith, and Gideon seems to have found some, right? Um, but let us take to heart the lesson that, you know, God having promised us heaven and earth tomorrow doesn't call for us to be foolish today. He calls us like, uh, like we talked about this morning, to be wise with what God has given to us, to be clever with what God has given to us, uh, and, to, and uh, it, that we may use it and, and walk by faith and obedience to our calling. And this finally brings us to the true purpose of assurance. Because what is assurance? Well, assurance is basically a strong certainty, full trust. That's what it is. It's a strong certainty of God's promises that you can feel in your bones. In the Hebrew, in the Greek, it's all the same. It, it means to have full trust in God and his word. But we need to see that assurance is never a means unto itself. Um, you know, it, it's, we're all about feelings today, but assurance is not about making us feel better. Although we may feel better when we have it. We certainly will. But for Gideon, God said this assurance through this dream that the soldiers were have, they're going to overhear, 
was so that he would get the assurance so that he would be strengthened to go battle in obedience to God's command. Assurance was to produce obedience in Gideon's life. Likewise, in the New Testament, assurance is so that we will have full assurance of hope in Jesus Christ for our life while we struggle in weakness and temptation and hardship. But in our weakness, God makes us strong in Jesus Christ so that we will endure to the end. In our weakness, God brings glory to himself by the demonstration of his power within us as weak vessels. The point is not that assurance is there to help us feel better about our difficult circumstances. But assurance is strengthening our trust in God and his promises as we carry out the fight of the faith. One problem with the concept of assurance in the church today is that many treat the presence of assurance as the sure sign that one is a Christian. But our sense, our, our confession says this, our catechisms say it, that assurance, though, is actually something that is in flux often in the Christian life. It can wax and wane. It's not a constant thing. Sometimes we hit hardships and we struggle. Other times we run headlong into sin through a, through we, by an embracing of rebelliousness and we lose our sense of assurance because of it. It doesn't mean we lose our salvation, but God can withdraw that sense of assurance that we have. But whatever the case, I will tell you that you will not find your assurance of salvation by looking deeply into the mirror, into your own eyes, or gazing deeply into your own navel. Assurance comes from the promises and signs that God has given to us. You know, why, why is it that we take the Lord's Supper repeatedly throughout the year? Because we need, we can do it every week, but in our practice, we, we say, hey, we need at least 13 reminders a year that the blood of Christ is enough to save us. We need at least 13 reminders, don't we? Like Paul, our assurance is not on a date it is not on our personal confidence in our sincerity at the moment of our conversion. Our confidence is not in ourselves or our ability to handle the situation. Our confidence is in Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. So we see how God will use human weakness to reveal to us that he is the only true deliverer of his people. He will at times use our circumstances to show our need for him and our absolute need for him. But he has also given us assurance by confirming his promises of deliverance and none more so than in his son, Jesus Christ, who in his very person is our assurance. He is our living assurance who stands in heaven for us, interceding for us. His wounds testify to our redemption his exaltation to our eternal destiny. And so we need to, with the apostle, boast all the more gladly in our weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon us. Because for the sake of Christ, we must be content with our weaknesses, with insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities, because in our weakness, we find that we are strong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you bless us even in our weakness. 
that even as we deal with physical frailty, as we deal with the frailty of life, the frailty of possessions, the frailty of, uh, of all types of things around us, as we contend with all manner of, of things that incite fears and anxieties in us, Father, we are grateful that assurance is not for the strong, but for the weak. And that you give assurance to your people through your son, Jesus Christ. That he stands as our true and unwavering assurance of our salvation. That even when we are weak and fearful and doubting, that we look into Christ and we see our name graven on his hands. That we know our sins are covered by his blood. That we have the sign of the covenant on our bodies in baptism. That we belong to you. That we take of the cup and the bread. The sign that is for us that you gave to us to remind us that we are covered and cleansed and bought with a price that cannot be undone. That your son is the good shepherd who does not lose the sheep. Who indeed cannot lose one. Father, we pray that we would glory in your love and that, when, that we would remember in our moments of weakness that our true assurance is not in our ability, but in Christ. And may we worship and may, we, and may that worship produce assurance that leads to obedience in the life of your saints. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.